0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Revelation, chapter 12, verse 14. Revelation 12, verse 14. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And our subject this evening is the security of the church. While we continue uh, in uh, this book of Revelation and in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, We are now into the fourth cycle, the fourth view of the Gospel Age, the fourth of seven views, different angles of uh, the Gospel Age, and uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, the fourth cycle is also the beginning of the second half of the book of Revelation. We're uh, just over halfway through this book. And the first half of the book focused on the outward struggle of the church and the outward warnings to the world to repent and the outward working of God's will in the world. So the first part really was the outward, all outward, the outward working of God's will and everything that that involved. But now in the second half of the book, we go behind the scenes, as it were, and uh, we see the spiritual battle that is taking place. Satan and uh, uh, his legions of fallen angels and his demons are warring against Christ and against the gospel and against the church. And uh, so, a spiritual battle is taking place behind the scenes, and uh, it's every bit as real. the outward battle. The spiritual battle is not figurative or imaginary or make-believe. It is very real and very serious. And uh, this uh, battle between uh, Satan and uh, the church and Christ has uh, been going on for a long time. We considered last week how even before the Lord Jesus Christ was born into this world, Satan was scheming to prevent his birth. He schemed to harm Israel and to uh, kill off the faithful, those who carried the promises of the Messiah and uh, how he would uh, put even into the heart of Herod when Christ was born to uh, slay all the children, all those who were two years old and under. Satan put that into Herod's heart because as we read in verse 4 of chapter 12 at the end, the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. The church is the woman. The church will, in a sense, give birth to Christ, because the church was anticipating, longing for Christ, prophesying of Christ, and uh, Christ would come from the faithful seed, those who uh, believed in the promises of Christ and through the nation of Israel, of course. So uh, the woman represents the church and uh, as soon as she is about to give birth to the Christ child, Satan is there. Satan wants to devour the child as soon as it is born. But he does not succeed the child is born, verse 5. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. This is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ comes into the world, and Satan is not able to do anything about it. But then in verse 6, the woman flees, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Christ is born, Christ Mm -hmm. achieves, accomplishes his work, all that he has come to do, and the woman flees into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God. And we will consider what the wilderness exactly is, in just a few moments. But first of all, and I slightly hesitate to do this, but we have to look at these uh, numbers and these dates that uh, uh, often uh, crop up in this book. The woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a 1,203 score days. 1,270 days. Well, we've already seen this number in uh, the previous chapter. Just to remind you, chapter 11 and uh, verse 3 And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. This is uh, the gospel age. This is what this date is a thousand two hundred and threescore days the period in which the church will be a witness. The two witnesses speak of the church, and uh, in that gospel age, they will witness to all those around them. And uh, by the way, the same time is mentioned also in verse 2, when uh, the holy city shall they tread underfoot, forty and two months, forty-two months is... uh, uh, 1,270 days, if you take a month to be 30 days, uh, then uh, uh, 1,270 days is 42 months. So uh, this is the same time, 42 months, when uh, uh, the, the true church, the true witness of the church will be active, and also the nominal church will be trodden underfoot, by uh, the Gentiles and by the world during the gospel age. That will happen side by side. The true witness of the church, but then also alongside that, the nominal believers who will not prosper. So then when we come to verse 12, we ought to know what that time means in verse 6. A thousand two hundred and days. Well, it's the same thing. It's the gospel age. The church will be in the wilderness Uh, for the whole of the gospel age. And uh, uh, in verse 14, just to tie it up even more, it's the same time mentioned in this verse, because the same thing is being uh, recounted here. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. This is the same thing that is being spoken of. Into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. Well, now we don't need to worry or get confused when we read a time and times and half a time because we know this is the same time. This is the gospel age. And uh, well, again, I hesitate to do this because I feel I'm already losing you with all these statistics. But uh, a time... Uh, And times and half a time, that is uh, best understood as the three and a half years, which is 1,270 days. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1,270 days is the same time. And uh, how the commentators interpret this, a time and times and half a time, well, a time is one year, that's one year, And a times, that's two years, because it's the plural of time. So uh, a time is one year, times is two years. And if you add one plus two, then you get three, and then you have half a time. So three and a half years. So it's really the same time. I hope you uh, haven't been entirely lost. Don't get... uh, Uh, Confused by these numbers, really what you have to understand is that they're the same time. They're just presented in different ways. And that's keeping with the rest of the book of Revelation. We've uh, already spoken so many times that uh, the book of Revelation presents to us different angles of the same thing, different views of the same thing. So it's true with the statistics and the numbers that are given. They're different representations of the same time, whether it's a time and times and half a time, or 1,270 days, or three and a half years, or 42 months. It's just different views of the same thing. It's in keeping with the book of Revelation. So uh, thankfully, we've got through that, and that's the gospel age. But uh, the woman, the church, she uh, has given birth to Christ, as it were, and she flees into the wilderness. And uh, we note in verse 6 that this is a place prepared of God. This is a good place, a place of safety, a place of security. But why does the church need to go into the wilderness? Why does the church need to this security? Well, because Satan will persecute the church. Look at verse 12, therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. There's rejoicing in heaven because Christ has been born, Christ has accomplished his great work, therefore there is rejoicing in heaven he has uh, paid the sin debt of all those who trust in him. He has ascended up on high. Therefore rejoice ye heavens. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. Why? For the devil is come down unto you. Having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. The devil is of course still on the earth. And he has great wrath. He hasn't been able to do away with Christ and he knows he has a short time and surely he knows that he will not win this battle but it seems that this only makes him more angry and more full of rage and verse 13 and when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man child again having failed to uh, do away with Christ, now he will persecute the church. And to the woman, verse 14, were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. So the woman in the wilderness, she is given two wings of a great eagle, Eagle, and uh, well, we read from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31, that expression of the wings of an eagle, so often used to express God's help for the church. How God will help the church, Isaiah 40:31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength; they shall mount up with wings as eagles; they shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not be faint. This is how the Lord will help his people. This is how it is expressed. But perhaps more relevant to our thinking uh, this evening, if you please turn with me to uh, the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 19. This will uh, help us uh, uh, understand uh, the passage in Revelation. Exodus chapter 19 We just read uh, the first verse just to give the context because already that will help us to uh, connect the dots. Exodus chapter 19. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. So this is the children of Israel. They have just been brought out of slavery out of the land of Egypt. Where have they come? They've come into the wilderness of Sinai. And then, well, verse 3, Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, and these words are very interesting in verse 4, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you. On eagle's wings and brought you unto myself. So it's the same language that we are seeing here. The wilderness is mentioned here, Israel in the wilderness, and the eagle's wings, the Lord's words to Moses to give to the children of Israel. And really, the point is this Israel is, of course, a type of the church. And God had led Israel out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness. And it was in the wilderness where God prepared the children of Israel to enter into the promised land in the wilderness. And that is just like the church. The church, well, in a sense, in a great sense, has been brought out of slavery, has been liberated. By the work of Christ, as I've mentioned, Christ has come and suffered and died. He has ascended up on high. Now the church is out of bondage, out of slavery. And we are, as it were, in the gospel age, in the wilderness. God leads the church into the wilderness. And it is in the wilderness where God is preparing us for the promised land. What is our promised land? The promised land is heaven, of course. We have been brought out of slavery. We are in the wilderness, in the gospel age, and we'll speak a little more about what that means. But the Lord is preparing us for the promised land to enter into heaven. And it's the same illustration. This helps us to understand it we are in the wilderness just as the children of Israel were in the wilderness. And of course, well, you know these things very well, how the church is so often described as uh, uh, being pilgrims, passing through this world, just as the children of Israel. They did not belong to any nation, as it were. They were in the wilderness. They were passing through. And, uh, At the first letter of Peter, chapter 2 and verse 11, he speaks to the believers, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts. That's the church, strangers and pilgrims. And well, if we turn back to Revelation chapter 12, if you're not already there, and verse 14, we read that the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, and we've seen that in Exodus, that she might fly into the wilderness. We've seen that in, wil- in the book of Exodus, into her place where she is nourished. It is a place of nourishment. Just as the Israelites were nourished in the wilderness by the manna falling from heaven, well, we too, the church, we are in the wilderness, but we are nourished. By God's word, by the promises of God's word, by all the answers to our prayers, the Lord helps us and sustains us. We are nourished, and just as the rock was smitten and water gushed out to refresh the Israelites, so too we are refreshed in Christ when we worship Christ, when we serve him, When we learn of him, we are refreshed, we are renewed. When we lean on his grace, well, uh, we are greatly blessed and helped. So this is a place of nourishment. And it is a place, as I've already mentioned, of security and safety from Satan. From the face of the serpent, we read there at the end of verse 14. And... uh, Uh, This is very important. But the wilderness, of course, and uh, I haven't fully explained what the wilderness truly means, the wilderness, of course, implies that we are separate from the world. The church is separate from the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. That's what the wilderness implies. The wilderness was, of course, It wasn't a worldly place. The wilderness was a place where no man would go to fulfill his lusts and his passions and his ambitions. The wilderness was not a worldly place. The Israelites had been called out of the world, and that's where they were. They were distinct. They did not belong to any nation, as I've already mentioned They did not follow the rules of any other nation. They belonged to God. And God gave them rules, laws, commandments. And they lived under those rules. And God made the Israelites distinct. They were to uh, have a different diet to all the other nations around them. They were in a way to look different in appearance even to all the other nations around them. Not that we are to follow those dietary laws now, of course not. But the point is that we too are to be distinct. We too, as the church, we are not to belong to any nation, as it were. We belong to God and we follow his rules and we follow his laws. We are in the wilderness. We have come out of the world. We've been called out of the world. And so we do not follow after worldly practices. We are distinctive. And uh, that distinctiveness, it helps us, it protects us from the face of the serpent, from the wiles of the devil. That is what protects us. Satan cannot attack us while we are in the wilderness. While we are distinct... While we are separate from the world, set apart, Satan cannot get at us. If we were of the world, if we still have worldly mindsets and worldly affections, then Satan can very easily attack us. He's on home ground, as it were. He can launch a full-scale attack upon us. But because we are in the wilderness, because we're set apart From the rest of the world, Satan cannot. That's the teaching, really, of these verses. The wilderness, our distinctiveness, it's our safety. I've often mentioned that uh, the church is never so beautiful, never more beautiful than when it is set apart and distinct. But also, you could equally say that it's never more protected than when it is set apart and when it is distinct because uh, well satan he cannot get a foothold when we are not of the world when we are set apart but look at verse 15 look at how this the serpent satan attacks us and the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood well, when we think of a flood, normally we think of Noah's flood and God's judgment against unbelievers. You could almost say that Satan, who is an imitator of God, is almost trying to imitate him, but this is a flood as a persecution against the righteous. God sends a flood as a judgment upon the ungodly. Satan. In his poor imitation, he wants to send a flood to attack the Lord's people. This is, uh, well, of course, Satan is a poor imitator. But uh, Herman Herxheimer, in his commentary, he uh, adds uh, another view of this uh, flood and of these words. He suggests, and I think again that he is right with this, that this flood that Satan casts out of his mouth is not to drown us, because of course Satan cannot do away with the church or kill us. It's not to drown us, but this flood is, as it were, to uh, carry us, so that we are carried back into the world, where he can attack us. We are in the wilderness, we are distinct, but Satan sends a flood because he wants us to be carried back into the world. And that is, uh, well, it's very pertinent, particularly in these modern times, how uh, much we see a flood, a flood of evil and wicked things that Satan devises to attack the church. Floods, in many ways, perhaps it's a flood of science. That's one flood that comes our way. Evolution and so on, discrediting the creation account. The dating of the world. Oh, this is science. We believe in science now, and a great flood comes in to try and uh, drag the church away from the Bible so that we lose faith in the Bible and we start thinking more along worldly lines. That's a great flood. Perhaps it's a flood of liberal values, liberal values, worldly values creeping into the church, sentimentality in the church that's a great flood at the moment things that are not based on biblical principles or biblical values but the world's values of what is good and what is right and what is wrong the world it's a it's a great flood coming in to try and take us away from the word of god there's a flood of worldly fear and anxiety fear all around us again attacking the church. Don't trust in God. God can't help you. Look to worldly means to protect you. Put all your trust in those things. As a flood, it just keeps coming to scare us so that we lose our faith. All these floods, floods of false teachers, you could also mention in the church, in the church itself, to try and carry the church back into the world. So uh, all of these floods, the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. But then verse 16, and the earth helped the woman and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. The earth of the wilderness, they're in the wilderness. Their authority is the word of God. When we make God's word our authority, then anything that Satan can throw at us, well, it's just uh, soaked up by the word of God. Satan will feed us lies, but we have the word of God. And the word of God just soaks it up. It cannot carry us away. We lean on the word of God. We trust in the word of God. We're not going to be taken in by lies and deceit. When we trust in the Lord, when we are distinct, when we make a stand, when we do not compromise in any way, then Satan cannot get at us. No matter what he says, we have the Word of God. And the Word of God will devour his lies, will swallow up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. This is why the Word of God is so important and why we must uphold it but then verse 17 and time has uh, gone very quickly so we'll just finish this chapter verse 17 and the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ well Satan does not just Attack the church, as it were, but also the individual believers, the remnant of her seed, we read here in verse 17, those individual believers. Yes, Satan attacks the church as a whole and tries to uh, destabilize the church, but also in this verse it is being pointed out that Satan attacks individual believers, and note that they are those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Those are the ones whom Satan will attack, not the nominal believers, not the believers or the professing believers who don't keep the commandments of God. They'll be left alone. Satan will will. Enable them or help them to have peaceful lives. He won't attack them. Only those who make a stand. Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Those who want to serve the Lord. We so often say it. If you are a true believer, if you want to stand for the Lord, if you want to serve God, well, Satan will attack you. That is certain. That is sure. And that is what's being presented here in verse 17. Satan will come alongside each and every one of us to discourage us. He will attempt to uh, uh, make us think that the world will prevail over us, that the world perhaps is, is having a far better time than we are. The world is doing so much better than you are. You are a believer in Christ. Look how you're suffering. Look how everything is going wrong for you. That's what Satan says to individual believers. Satan will say that you're not saved. Satan will say to you that at the very end of your life, you'll be discarded. You think you're a Christian now. You think you're a good Christian. Wait till the end. God will forsake you. That's what Satan will say, reminding us of all our sins, reminding us of all our failings. Satan attacks the church as a whole, but he attacks individuals. But dear friends, when we read all of this, we remember that Christ has come, he has prevailed. Remember what we looked at last uh, week. How the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And verse 11, just to close, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. This is how we overcome Christ by the blood of the Lamb. That blood that has paid our sin debt, nothing further is required. I do not have to contribute. I do not have to suffer and die. Christ has paid the price, the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, our witness, the the power of the word in our lives, what the word has done, changed us and transformed us, And our testimony is true. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Well, we trust, of course, and we believe that we have a glorious eternity ahead of us. And we are. We are just passing through. We are pilgrims in this world. And we don't love our lives unto the death. We don't make roots in this world. We are always looking to eternity. We are always looking to our glorious reward. Because that's the opposite. That's the opposite ultimately of what it is to be worldly. Worldliness, one of the descriptions of worldliness is that you uh, have an over-concern for your life here on earth. But the opposite of that, well, we read that in verse 11. They loved not their lives unto the death. Even if they were to be taken, even if they were to die for their testimony, they would. And they rejoiced in this because they know that they belong to the Lord. So this is our great protection against uh, the wiles of Satan. And all of his attacks against the church and against us as individuals, we turn away from the world. We count it a joy to be in the wilderness, to be in the world, but not of the world. And this will be our safety, our assurance, and our great and glorious protection. Well, may the Lord bless these things to us.